The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at the healthcare sector and the issues driving healthcare stocks. My guest is Barron's reporter, Josh Nathan Cases, who covers healthcare companies, regulatory issues, and a whole lot more. Welcome back to Barron's Live, Josh. Great to be here. Been a while since we were on together. I think so. We've had a lot of summer vacations, but we yeah. missed you. <laughs> okay. Earlier this year, we decided to stop opening this call with an update on COVID. Cases were way down. Worries were fading. I'm sure you remember. Alas, we spoke too soon, and now a new variant has emerged, BA.2.86, and hospitalizations are up, and people are talking about it again. I believe the First Lady has come down with COVID. Tell us how significant the latest developments are and how the COVID battle is going. It's certainly back you know, in the news. It's um, you know, back in the center of public attention, but I don't think it's... Um, it, we're not, we don't appear to be in a situation comparable to any of the sort of bad periods that our minds will cast back to when we begin to talk about COVID. Um, you know, I, I think that the situation seems manageable and, and that's, that's where we should start. I mean, as you say, in this country, hospitalizations are up. They're about uh, up about 30% over the last two weeks in the U.S., according to the New York Times tracker. Um, but, you know, they still remain lower. Uh, than at any other point in the pandemic. Um, uh, you know, and, and these figures, in my understanding, are, uh, you know, new admissions to hospitals who are positive for COVID. So it's important to note that not all of these numbers reflect people who are actually in the hospital for COVID. Um, you know, the other good news is that the new boosters, uh, we could expect them in pharmacies, I, I think, as early as next week. We don't really know. Um, the timeline's not a thousand percent clear. By this time last year, the new boosters were already available in U.S. pharmacies. But the CDC has scheduled a meeting of its vaccines advisors for September 12th. That's next Wednesday. And last year, at least, vaccines were in pharmacies days after that meeting. So FDA approval or authorization would need to come first. So that would need to come before next Wednesday. Um, but if that timeline, uh, if we, you know, if the agency sticks to that timeline and you know, all the recommendations and, and approvals are positive, um, vaccines should be available quite soon. Okay. Tell us, will they work against the new variants? Yeah, and, and there's been good news on this just in the last few days. Now, for, first of all, we should say that these these new boosters, I guess they're not calling them boosters, but, um, you know, new shots, I guess. I guess we don't talk about our annual flu shots as boosters. We talk about them as our annual flu shots. So I guess we're sort of shifting to, trying to think about these as annual COVID shots, potentially. Um, anyhow, these were designed to target a variant called XBB.1.5, which is basically extinct. I mean, it still exists. It shows up in the CDC data, but it's not dominant. Um, it was the dominant variant in June when 
the uh, FDA decided to ask manufacturers to target that variant. It is no longer. However, the good news is that, at least according to the companies, it seems as though it will work not only against the currently dominant variants, but also against this variant called BA.2.86, which you mentioned at um, the beginning of, of this segment of the call. This is a variant that we've been talking a lot about over the last few weeks. It's appeared in a handful of countries over the world, and it's quite different from the circulating variant. So when it was first spotted, people began to worry that it, because it was so different, it would evade the immunities that are already widespread in the population. You know, I mean, the reason why we don't have um, a flu pandemic every year is that, you know, we have um, lingering immunities that help us not get super sick um, uh, to the flu because we've been exposed to similar flus. Um, uh, and, and similarly with, with COVID, COVID is basically uh, under control now because we've been exposed to or we, we've been infected with or vaccinated against um, variants that are similar enough to what's out there now that our immune systems are able to, you know, be more resilient. Um, anyway, the, the, the fear was that BA.2.86 would evade this immunity. But there's been some studies and some work in the last few days that suggest that not only are people um, almost as protected against BA.2.86 with their, you know, current immunities built up from infection and earlier uh, vaccination, um, but also the new vaccines may also offer reasonable protection from that variant. I've said a lot, uh, but the point here is, um, I think over the last few days, people have been less concerned that this new variant will cause, could cause, you know, an Omicron-like event, um, similar to something we saw in, you know, late 21 and early, early 22, when the wildly different Omicron variant swept across the world. Um, that is, you know, it's always been a fear that that could happen again. There's no reason it couldn't happen again, but at least for now, both because of these studies, um, including one by a lab at Beth Israel in Boston run by uh, Dr. Dan Baruch, who actually designed the J&J vaccine, um, suggests that maybe this variant won't be the one that causes this big problem. Um, so uh, so the... the uh, there was a release yesterday, Wednesday, from Moderna saying that its new booster induced a strong antibody response to BA.2.86. Pfizer hasn't put out a similar uh, statement, but um, the, the vaccines are quite similar. So I, I think we hopefully be confident that they, they will both work similarly. Um, but, but uh, you know, the one big question is who is going to be recommended to take this booster? You know, last year, as people will remember, the CDC recommended it basically for everyone down to like, I think, six month olds. Um, you know, the FDA, when they approve it, may issue broad approval, but the CDC has an advisory committee that issues guidances for who they suggest actually take specific vaccines. Um, and I don't think we really know if those advisors are going to say, you know, um, everyone should take this or only. Uh, older adults, for example. And and that's, that's a, I think, a big question mark. So the news is troubling, but the news is not terrible. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I guess right. there's reason for hope here, but the darn thing does not go away. Anyway, so, moving on to Moderna. Wait, sorry, before we move on, should we just, you want to ask about the, should we just mention what sort of expectations around uptake? Because those, those have been moving. Oh, yeah, that's, a that's a good point. You know, we'll, Assuming that the CDC recommends X population should take the should take the new vaccine, 
what will the uptake be? A lot of people seem to be disinclined now. You know, early in the year, both Pfizer and Moderna had said that they expect that over the course of the year, 100 million Americans will take COVID shots, so COVID boosters. So there will be 100 million COVID boosters administered. Early in August, Moderna definitively stepped back from that and said they now expect 50 to 100 million. And Pfizer, although they didn't issue new guidance like Moderna did, um, implied as well that they're expecting to miss estimates. I think that the increased attention and the increased hospitalizations that came in August led to some questions about whether actually maybe, you know, the higher range was still higher end of that range was still in the realm of possibility. Bottom line is we just we just don't know. Um, I think investors are quite skeptical that um, uptake will be widespread this year. But um, uh, it's it's really you know the other big question and um, you know contingent a bit I guess on the CDC recommendations um, and also on you know what what well, contingent on the like. course of the disease. Correct. Yeah. 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 What happens over the next few months? A lot of lot of unknowns yet again. So thank you for that comprehensive look, Josh, at, at the topic that won't go away. So Moderna was a big COVID winner. Its messenger RNA vaccine saved the day and possibly saved humanity. But that was then. This year, the stock is down sharply, although it's had a decent rally this summer. And investors and other Moderna watchers are asking, what's next? You've covered the company for a long time, since well before COVID arrived on the scene. So what is happening and what is next? What's your view? Yeah, so as you say, you know, the stock is still down something like 40% year to date. Uh, you know, it's up, uh, last I looked, about 13% since the middle of August. There was a bullish Barron story that may have, may have supported the stock by our colleague Andrew Barry. Uh, I think also, you know, a lot of attention to, you know, as I just mentioned, uh, I think increased worry over the increase in uh, the rise in COVID cases may have led people to, um, you know, wonder if maybe the, the, the sell-off was overdone. I think the big question here is what can turn this stock around? There was an interesting note yesterday from Michael Yee, who's an analyst at Jefferies, who said, you know, the dialogue really needs to move away from COVID for that company. There's not a lot of optimism for among investors for, um, you know, any any increase in COVID vaccine sales, to say the least. Um, there is a lot else going on. You know, this is a company that, in contrast to Pfizer, which used its COVID windfall to do a big group of acquisitions, Moderna has really poured it into its pipeline. Um, and as Andrew pointed out, they have a lot of cash. Um, there is some data that Yi expects, Michael Yi expects next week on an updated, hopefully improved version of its flu vaccine. The flu vaccine program alone may not be... Um, such a huge winner for the company. However, what they're really targeting are these combo respiratory vaccines, um, uh, which could come in 2025. Those might combine, say, a COVID and a flu vaccine, maybe a, a, a RSV a flu vaccine, maybe all three. That's really what the company is aiming for in its vaccine um, uh, uh, strategy. And it's really sort of focused at older adults and, um, you know, the, the, those sort of combo vaccines haven't been offered. I mean, RSV vaccines are new this year. Um, COVID vaccines are <laughs> new just a couple of years ago. Um, and now, you know, older adults are getting recommendations this year to get three different respiratory vaccines. And it's not entirely clear whether you should get them all at once or not. So this could solve a real problem if it does come online. 
it's contingent on um, you know Moderna being able to show that its improved flu vaccine is as good as competitors' flu vaccines, um, and that'll become more clear in the coming weeks. So I think the really the real big question is like, what is gonna change the change the focus for for Moderna investors? They they have a really serious cost base. Um, uh, they're spending a lot of money on their COVID program. Uh, the the company has talked to us and to others about you know realigning that cost base. Um, but uh, th th there's there there just needs to be I think um, a big win somewhere or something that that can really shift the the focus for investors. For sure, as you say, the stock is down forty percent this year. That's uh, definitely gets investors notice. So switching gears, I want to talk about some important developments in the regulatory arena. Last week, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services announced the first 10 prescription drugs that are going to be subject to Medicare price negotiations under the IRA or the Inflation Reduction Act. What are the big drugs subject to these price negotiations and why have so many pharma companies sued to block this program? Yeah, I would say this is probably the biggest story of the year in pharma, maybe across healthcare, um, you know, everyone's been talking about these weight loss drugs from uh, Novo and, and Lilly, and obviously those are important, but this really has long-term impacts across the whole sector. Um, you know, as people will remember, there's this new, you know, M Medicare has not been allowed to negotiate on drug pricing, um, uh, at, at, you know, altogether uh, as a, it, Medicare, uh, unlike other federal government programs like the uh, entities, sorry, like the VA, Medicare can't go to drug makers and say, we're your biggest client. Um, you got to cut us a deal. And that, that was statute, you know, it's written into the statute. Um, this is going to be the first time when Medicare actually can uh, negotiate drug prices. And, and because um, they're such a big part of the drug industry, you know, their, their purchases amount to a significant proportion of sales for some of these companies, depending on the drug, um, you know, lower prices, for Medicare, significantly lower prices for Medicare patients uh, could be quite material to some of these companies. So the process, we, we've sort of known this was coming for a year, the law, right. a year. Um, but the, the way the law is structured, it rolls out very slowly. Uh, in fact, the first negotiated prices don't go into effect until 2026. So what we learned last week was the 10 drugs for which uh, Medicare Part D, the prescription drug benefit, will be able to negotiate prices to go into effect in 2026. And many of these drugs, you know, we knew they would be on the list. There were some uncertainties because, uh, you know, the, the, the drugs that Medicare spends the most on, and they were using data that they hadn't released yet. Um, so, you know, it, it had to do with like, you know, 2022 sales, essentially, um, which we just didn't know yet, and, and some other intricacies. Some were not a surprise. The big one that I think we talk a lot about is um, Eliquis. That's a blood thinner from Pfizer and Bristol together. Uh, Medicare Part D spent $16 billion on that drug from June 22nd, 2022 to May 2023, which is the period covered. Um, that's more than any other by far. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but that's that's a, a real big chunk of their total drug spend. So I think everyone knew Eliquis was going to be on there. There are others, uh, Jardiance from Lilly. There's a J&J drug called Xarelto. Genuvia, which is a diabetes medicine from Merck. Um, J&J's Imbruvica. Uh, again, many of these were not 
not surprises. Um, and I don't think you saw stocks move much on this. The big question really is whether this program is actually going to go into effect. A long list of drug makers, many of the companies I just mentioned, have sued to stop this program. Um, they're calling it unconstitutional. And uh, I, I think there's something like nine lawsuits between the pharma companies and the industry groups. Some of them are gunning for a Supreme Court ruling that would overturn the program. Some of them, though, in the meantime, because that would take probably until 2026, are looking for a stay, uh, an order from some district court judge to halt implementation of the ruling. And they've, they've filed these cases in many different jurisdictions in front of many different federal judges. Um, not all of them are looking for these stays, but a few of them have asked for them so far, at least two. Um, so Do the drug companies think that this sort of price negotiation will really impact their bottom lines? Is that's that what the they reason? say. I mean, the rhetoric that they use is it will, you know, stifle innovation. And they point to a couple of things when you talk to them. You know, one issue that's come up a lot is that these drugs become eligible for negotiation after they've been on the market a certain number of years. And I mean, you know, what they'll say is we go off patent after a certain number of years. And so, um, you know, you're just sort of shortening the patent period or the exclusivity period that we earn and that we use to um, to, to compensate for the high cost of uh, you know developing these medicines um, and design and testing these medicines. Uh, now, you know the companies will say that they need to um, to charge a lot during this period because after the drugs go off patent, they begin to face competition from generic and biosimilar drug developers. And um, that is, uh, at that point, the price of the medicine drops precipitously. Um, the, the, the period, it's a little tricky to, you know, what the company will say, or advocate, I'm sorry, what advocates for the law will say is that patent periods are extended through litigation. And, you know, um, the, for certain kind of medicines, the prices actually don't fall that much. Uh, the question, I think, is, um, you know, one, another issue these companies raise, right, is that uh, certain kind of medicines have longer periods before they're eligible for negotiation than others. Um, So-called uh, uh, small molecule drugs, basically traditional pills, uh, take longer. I'm sorry, are, are, are have shorter periods before they can be negotiated. So some companies will say this will disincentivize development of pills, which are cheaper than the alternatives, which are biologics. Um, they also talk about cancer medicines. Uh, the way that companies roll out cancer medicines now is that they'll get approval uh, first in a very sort of um, a very advanced indication, people who are very sick, and then the drug will launch. And then over time, they'll do the harder, more expensive, more time intensive tests to get them approved for the broader early stage indications, which, you know, probably save more lives, um, but take longer to test. They'll say that model doesn't work anymore because by the time you get your you know, um, your 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 broadest indication approved. You you've run it, run the clock out, and the drug is negotiated, and you're not going to get any revenue. Um, so it challenges that model. You know, you could also argue. I think companies will argue that it disincentivizes development of drugs uh, designed for older adults. I mean, while um, advocates of this law wanted these prices to apply broadly to across the commercial market, uh, that's not what passed these laws. These prices only apply to the Medicare program. So, um, you know, if a company might choose, you know, theoretically 
not to develop drugs that would be used largely by seniors if they didn't want to get dinged by this program. You know, there's a whole suite of arguments on the other side. Uh, we are the only country in the world that has no regulation of drug pricing, um, or at least effectively the only developed country in the world. Uh, we have no, you know, companies can charge whatever they want for a certain period until uh, generics are available. And that means that we have the highest drug prices. And um, so that's that's kind of the scope of the argument. Uh, you know, the, the, the claims of the constitutional claims these companies are making, they're making a bunch of different ones. The most, I think, easy to grasp, at least for me, is um, there's a bit of the Fifth Amendment called the Takings Clause that says that private property can't be taken for public use without just compensation. They basically say this negotiation process is unilateral price setting on the part of the government, not a negotiation process. We'll see what the government says, and we'll see if that is a um, successful argument in court. A big mess, in other words. So, assuming, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a mess. I think it's a... You know, it's 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 a it's a classic back and forth between right. It's a thorny legal problem. Potentially, yeah, yeah. We'll see. We'll see how it develops. Yeah, should be very interesting. Assuming the program does proceed, how many more drugs will become eligible in coming years, and how will the government choose them? Yeah, and so as I said, this this expands over time. So I think it's. Uh, 15 new drugs in the Part D program in 2027. It eventually ramp, ramps up so the government could add as many as 20 drugs a year um, to the list. It also expands the Part B, which um, pays for a different uh, for for inpatient medicine uh, in 2028. So more and more drugs as they become as they age out will become eligible for these negotiated prices. And the way the company the government picks them. It's spelled out in the legislation. It has to do with the drugs that that the, that the programs spend the most on. And if you look, I mean, there's been some very interesting papers on this and, and articles on this. People interested should go look at the KFF, uh, used to be called Kaiser Family Foundation website. They do some really interesting work, and they find that a significant proportion of the spending is on a few very high-priced drugs in the Part D program. Mm -hmm. And that's what this targets. Very interesting. We'll be watching it and you will certainly be covering it. So another topic I'd like to cover today, finally, finally, for companies hoping to engage in mergers and acquisitions, there is some good news on the regulatory front. Amgen's acquisition of Horizon will be allowed to proceed with certain circumstances put in place. What is this deal all about and how did the regulatory breakthrough finally occur? So, um, this this has been really interesting and there's been a lot of focus on the FTC across a lot of different sectors this year but a big one has been in in healthcare um you know one of the most interesting i think has been the suit by the FTC to block the acquisition of a large large biopharma company called Horizon Therapeutics by Amgen one of the biggest biotechs you know a, a lot of times when the FTC raises these objections it's because of portfolio overlap between the two but there was none here. FTC raised, I think, a novel argument here, which is that Amgen could use its negotiating power because of its broad portfolio of drugs to lock in monopoly positions of two horizon drugs. So essentially, the argument was that Amgen, because it sells a lot of medicines that the pharmacy benefit managers would want to you know, secure on their formularies for health insurance companies to, to use, um, they, they could uh, pay big rebates to the pharmacy benefit managers they can afford to because of their big portfolio 
in return for favorable placement on the formularies of the Horizon drugs. So let's say the Horizon drugs had a few competitors. Um, you know, uh, Amgen could say, you know, we'll pay big rebates on our other drugs um, if you will, you know, list our Horizon drugs on your formulary instead of somebody else's drugs for the same condition. That's sort of hypothetical, but that's the basic argument. Um, if that argument worked, you know, if that agreement stood, uh, I'm sorry, if, 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 if the FTC was actually able to block the deal, it could, I think, theoretically have been used to block lots of acquisitions of smaller biotechs with novel products by bigger companies. You know, there's no reason why you couldn't use that logic against almost any deal um, in which a big pharma company or a big biotech buys a company that has a drug on the market. Um, but on September 1st, the FTC announced that it settled with Amgen. And under the terms, Amgen basically can't do, <laughs> it's just barred from doing what the FTC was worried it could do. So they can't bundle Amgen drugs with any of these Horizon drugs. And they can't condition rebates related to an Amgen product on positioning of the drugs. I understand this is all quite technical, but the basic, the bottom line is uh, Amgen can acquire Horizon and um, the FTC, I guess, probably won't be blocking all biopharma mergers in the future. Um, so uh, do you, you, know, you expect this to open the floodgates to a lot more healthcare m and I don't think the the pharma stocks moved much on this. So I don't think uh, investors ne necessarily thought so. Um, uh, I think this is one of a lot of concerns weighing on the sector. That said, um, maybe it, 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 it removes a major potential pitfall. I think, I think that the reaction maybe would have been quite negative if this deal actually hadn't gone through. Um, but maybe investors had sort of anticipated that the FTC wouldn't be successful here. Um, you know, the other big deal pending is Pfizer's acquisition of CGEN. Um, we haven't heard any updates on this recently, but analysts do seem to still expect it to close around the end of the year. So I think my sense is that um, investors are feeling like some of these FTC concerns are more manageable, perhaps, than they did, you know, six months ago. Got it. Interesting development for sure. So before we get to some listener questions, I wanted to take a look at a big management change in the pharmacy sector. Rosalind Brewer is leaving as CEO of Walgreens less than three years after she started. Two months ago, the CFO said he was leaving. The stock, ticker is WBA, has sunk like a stone in the past five years, including this year, it's down pretty sharply. It yields more than 8%. That's a yield that is often a source of concern. We, we think it's a great yield, but you know when a stock yields that much, there are generally are worries attached to it. I know you don't follow Walgreens very closely, but what can you tell us about this situation? Yeah, you know, I think this was not expected, right? Um, you know, right. Walgreens has been in a difficult situation. They they made, I think their 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 core pharmacy business has not been uh, growing like they would have liked. Um, they tried to sell Boots, which is their um, outside of the U.S. Uh, pharmacy brand. That hasn't happened. Um, they made a big bet on primary care, urgent care, and, uh, you know, uh, similar to other. Josh, I think I lost you there. Unless you lost me. We'll try again.
Lauren, you still there? Josh, can you hear me? Yep, I'm here. Sorry, I got knocked off for a second, but I'm back. Yeah, one of, one of us got knocked off. I'm not, oh. I'm not sure whom. But yeah, well, I'm here. Sorry, did, how much did you hear about Walgreens? <laughs> uh, not too much. But okay, I'll, I'll just say it very quickly. Um, the, they, they made a big bet on uh, on primary care, and um, and it's not quite clear how that's paying off primary care, urgent care, similar to CVS, you know, and it's sort of early stages there. And um, I think they need to convince investors that that's going to bring the growth that the core pharmacy business isn't. And I don't think they're quite there yet. Okay. Another situation we're going to keep an eye on. So let's get to some questions. Amy asks if you could give an opinion on United Healthcare, or at least tell us what the issues are there. Uh, sure. Yeah. Look, I mean, this, you know, the inter most interesting issue in, 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 in the big, managed care space right now, I think, is the question around the future of the PBMs. I mean, you saw it was two weeks ago, um, a major regional health insurer decided to ditch uh, CVS's P PBM, more or less. These are the pharmacy benefit managers that are owned by the big managed care companies that negotiate with the pharma companies on their behalf. Um, you know, I think uh, regulators and pharma companies have really been gunning for the PBMs over the last few years. And um, I think you know, that business is a real, at a, at a real pivot point right now. And it'll be really interesting to watch over the next few years. For sure. All right. Rita wants to know what the outlook is for cancer vaccines from Moderna. And she's not the only one. Yeah. And, and we should be clear, because I, I was always confused about this. Uh, these are these are treatments, not preventatives. Uh, Merck, is, Merck and point. Moderna are uh, testing, I think, a very promising one. Um, I don't think... It's, it's relatively early, early stage, right? Um, we don't fully know if these are going to work, but there was a really positive trial, and um, I think people are very optimistic. You know, I was talking earlier about something that could change the narrative for Moderna. Uh, you know, a very positive outcome in that ongoing trial. Wouldn't it um, also change the narrative for cancer? Uh, well, yes and no. Um, you know. I think people get very excited about these new modalities, but you really need to test them. And there's no, you know, in, until they actually work in a trial, you know, we don't know if it's going to work in a trial. Um, so certainly if they are as effective in other cancers or if they're effective in melanoma as they look, appeared to be in the early trial, then that would be wonderful. But, um, you know, in the best case scenario, absolutely. I, I just think, you know, people need to, let the science play out. Fair point. Okay, we had a question from Glover about gains in Lilly. What's the outlook there? Lilly, of course, is a producer of one of the hot weight loss drugs. Yeah, I think the debate there is just whether the stock is overvalued. I mean, it's half a trillion dollars now, and um, there's tremendous enthusiasm for these drugs, these um, weight loss drugs, uh, you know, um, analysts are predicting incredible peak sales figures for this medicine. And I think it's easy to start thinking about all the things that could go wrong. Um, but right now, things don't seem to be going wrong. And, um, uh, you know, if we're Lily, Lily has, even before people were super focused on these weight loss drugs, has always had, you know, the highest valuation, or for many years, had the highest valuation in the pharma sector. 
Um, it's not just the weight loss drugs. They have a promising Alzheimer's drug, um, lots of other things going on there. So it's a very, um, I think, you know, clearly well-run company with a lot going on. They also don't have the patent cliff problem that just about every other big pharma company has in the near, near term. So, you know, things are, um, I mean, it's a, it's a very strong, well-positioned stock right now. You know, it's a very exciting time in the whole healthcare field, but you wouldn't know it from a lot of the other stocks. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I mean, just because uh, there's interesting science doesn't mean that values, uh, you know, the company valuations are, or the market correctly values the companies that are selling these medicines. So I'm going to close with a question from Hap, who wants to know, what is the expected growth rate of the sector in 2024 and 2025? I don't know if you can answer that precisely, but perhaps you can tell us what the outlook is. Yeah, I just, I'm sorry. You know, I don't have the the consensus figures in front of me, um, and I'm, I'm just not sure what they are right now. But more broadly, what, what are people expecting from the sector? Do they think there'll be some sort of a turnaround for the stocks and some sort of pickup in the industry? In the coming year? Oh, just in terms of like share prices. Yeah. You know, I, th I think uh, there had been a lot of optimism that biotech could rally in the second half of this year. Uh, we haven't quite seen that yet. Um, and uh, most of the pharma stocks are trading at, you know, 52 week lows right now, or many of them, not most of them, but many of them outside of, you know, Lilly and Novo uh, and a couple of others. So, um, I, you know, I, I think people are, are looking for the next shoe and wondering what's going to turn things around, but I, I don't think we quite know yet. Well, we'll come back on a later call and talk about the next two years and what the growth rate looks like then. That's a great idea. Okay. Thank you so much, Josh. Lots of useful and important information today. Thank you to our listeners as well for tuning in and thanks for your questions. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Barron's Ideas Editor, Matt Peterson, will be talking with ADP Chief Economist, Neela Richardson. They'll be looking at the labor market, changing work trends, and Richardson's most recent remarks at the Federal Reserve Symposium in Jackson Hole. Thanks again, everybody, for listening in today. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.